Well, every seven years, on average, Christmas falls on the Lord's Day. So, though we've been making our way through the epistle to the Ephesians, because this is a Christmas Sunday, I want to put Ephesians on hold for this week and talk to you a little bit about Christmas this morning. There's always a bit of confusion around Christmas regarding what people believe about the holiday. But what has struck me particularly in the weeks leading up to this morning is how much of the church has responded to Christmas being on the Lord's Day. The debate really began a few months ago when it sort of gained steam over the last few weeks as many churches announced that they would be canceling service on the Lord's Day in order to observe Christmas. Imagine canceling the Lord's Day as a way to say we're celebrating the Lord's birth. That makes about as much sense as skipping your wedding day to celebrate the person you're about to marry. It makes no sense at all. It's ironic, it's sad, and it's tragic. I say it's tragic because it isn't the world that's demanding that the church close, it's those who profess to be the church willingly shutting their doors. It's also very tragic because we are seeing a fundamental shift in much of the visible church regarding how we believe we are to honor Christ and how we are to view the Lord's Day. Now, to be clear, I don't think this is a new development. We're just seeing it play out in various and conspicuous ways. Now, someone might say, Nathaniel, what's the big deal? After all, it's just one Sunday. It's just one holiday. It doesn't happen very often, once in seven years or so. Well, before I answer that question, I want to spend, I, I, this week I spent a few hours deciding that I wanted to know the reason behind closing the church's doors. And so I read a bunch of the reasons behind canceling from various pastors and various churches. One church, and I want to share a few of those with you. One church that made the New York Times, a megachurch in Nebraska, said, and I quote, we still believe in the Sunday experience, but we have to meet people where they are. Sunday experience? Meet people where they are? This is the language of a man-centered religion. Just let that sink in. Well, what were some of the other reasons given? Well, some of the other reasons were there is too much setup to do before the service and we won't have quite enough people. You guys particularly will love this one. Oh, 80% would be absent, so we just can't open. We'll be too small to open the doors on Sunday. Another was, we want to be pro-family. Now understand, in other words, that means coming to church on a Sunday morning is somehow anti-family. But that was the reason given. One pastor said, and I quote, of all my non-Christian friends and nominally Christian friends, those are the same thing, by the way, I do not know one of them who will be looking for somewhere to worship Sunday morning. Dear pastor, you need to get some new friends. To add to that list, our community's largest so-called church here in Homer is closed today. 
Now, while it may seem insignificant, it matters how we treat the Lord's Day. When Christmas falls on the Lord's Day, what we do demonstrates the theology and the doctrine we have of the Lord's Day, of Christmas, and necessarily of Christ Himself. Sadly, for those who shut their door today, their doctrine is made very clear. And ultimately, it's that they do not believe God is worthy of worship unless it's convenient. They believe that man decides how and when to worship God rather than God deciding how He should be worshipped. They believe that other things in this world are better for the family than worshiping God on the Lord's Day together. And they demonstrate in this single action that they have a higher view of man and of tradition than of God. But the issue isn't particularly the issue of whether or not Christmas falls on a Sunday, but rather how the church and many believers view the Lord's Day. Now, the fact that the cancellations are occurring because of Christmas, of all holidays, on a Sunday is really peak irony. But we need to understand that Christmas is not what makes this Sunday special. Please hear that. The fact that today is Christmas doesn't make this Sunday any more special than any other Sunday. And if we don't understand that, then we haven't yet come to a biblical understanding of true worship. Jesus Christ is what makes Sunday special. And it's the same Jesus Christ that makes Christmas special. And should Christmas happen to fall on a Sunday, we don't suddenly change who or how we worship. On Sunday, we worship God in Christ through the aid of the Holy Spirit. And so every Sunday is an appropriate day to consider the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday, it's appropriate to thank God for our salvation in Christ. So why would anyone use the excuse of Christmas a day to remember the birth of Christ to close the church. That shouldn't make sense to any true believer. I think that sort of answers the question of what's the big deal? Why does it matter if a church closes on Christmas? But the big deal is that Sunday is the Lord's Day. And to cancel the public gathering of God's people for Christmas it's to demonstrate a lack of understanding of just who it is that we worship on Sunday and whose birth we celebrate on Christmas. If you close on Sunday, you don't understand who it is you worship on Sunday or who it is we worship during Christmas. So how important is it that we worship God the way He desires to be worshipped? This is a question that needs to be answered if you quickly want to turn to Leviticus chapter 10, otherwise you can just listen as I read it. We read, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, 
By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all people I will be honored. So Aaron, therefore, kept silent. You see, God hasn't changed the way he desires to be worshipped. God alone gets to determine how God gets to be worshipped or is to be worshipped. And in reality, it's only God's grace that he withholds consequence when we refuse to rightly worship. God certainly doesn't strike down everyone. Thank God we'd all be dead. But he has, and he certainly can. And what we should learn from that is that there is a right way to worship God, to reverence God. We serve a loving God and a gracious God. And of course, that's the very thing people often point to when we read the story of Nadab and Abihu. They'll say, well, that was the Old Testament God. Our God is gracious now. He's loving now. Well, that's very interesting because in Malachi 3, 6, the Lord says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The God of the Old Testament, or the First Testament, is not different than the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. And then if someone were to say, well, that's Old Testament that you quoted from, well, you can go to Hebrews 13.8, and we read Jesus Christ as the same yesterday, today, and forever. But what about the New Testament? Well, if you turn to Acts chapter 5 quickly, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, we have another encounter here. It says this, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and they kept some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came over all who heard it. You know, it's an interesting story. If you back up a little bit, we're told that in the New Testament here, in this time, everyone was selling goods and bringing the extra that they have and giving it to the church so that everyone was without need. And Ananias didn't have to bring anything. It wasn't a command. He could have sold the land and brought only a portion of it. That would have been fine, as Peter says here. But he sold it. He gave only a portion of it, and he made it sound like it was everything. And God struck him dead for what most in our culture would have just called a quote-unquote little white lie. God God expects reverence. God desires and demands right worship. And we see in Scripture, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we don't get to choose how we respond to God. God chooses how we are to respond to Him. Of course, the story goes on to tell us that Sapphira came shortly after, and she also lied as her and her husband decided to do, and God struck her down as well. And the result of all of this was found in verse 11. It says, And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. 
And so you say, well, what does all that have to do with Christmas? What does all that have to do with Christmas? Well, simply this, how we choose to worship God matters. How we choose to worship God matters. We never change the worship of the Lord's day because it's a holiday. By the way, the next Sunday is another holiday. It's New Year's Day. And we'll still be open. So I hope that in the future, anytime a holiday falls on Sunday, there'll be no confusion about how the church should respond. The first question that I wanted to address was whether the church should be meeting on Christmas if it falls on Sunday or not. I realize, by the way, that I'm speaking to the choir because you're here on a Christmas Sunday, right? But now, what about Christmas specifically? We talked about the Lord's Day. There really is always some confusion about whether Christians should even celebrate Christmas or not, right? You hear the challenge about it being a pagan holiday. It's not something Christians should celebrate, or is it something Christians should celebrate? So this is the next question that I want to address for you this morning. There are historical facts about the 25th of December that one side or the other may not like but we need to acknowledge them as true. So firstly, we should say that there is nothing in the pages of Scripture that would lead us to believe Jesus was born December the 25th. In fact, everything we see in Scripture is contrary to that. This was not the time of year likely that Christ was born. Beyond that, we should also acknowledge that while we are commanded to assemble and worship on the Lord's Day, There is no imperative in Scripture to celebrate specifically the birth of Christ. That's just true. Now, when we look at the history of the 25th of December, we also need to acknowledge that the Romans celebrated a pagan festival on that day. That's true. Now, again, these are all just historical and biblical truths. There's no need to twist them, distort them, or reject them. They are what they are. But then what are we to do with the fact that now we have Christmas on the 25th of December, which used to be a pagan holiday? Well, first, I think it's helpful to recognize how Christmas as we know it came about. Essentially, what happened was Christians in the early church refused to celebrate the Roman festival. So instead, they decided to make it a time where they would celebrate something of their own, something that wasn't pagan, something that was dear to them, precious to them, important to them. They decided that on the 25th of December, they would celebrate the birth of their Lord and Savior. And I'm just going to leave that information with you because the reality is that since there is no command in Scripture specifically to celebrate the birth of Christ or Christmas, and what Christians celebrate as Christmas is entirely different, than the pagan festival that happened on the 25th, this issue really comes down to Christian liberty. The Christian can choose to celebrate Christmas or the Christian can choose not to celebrate Christmas. Now that's not to be confused with what we do on the Lord's Day. On the Lord's Day, the Christians gather and worship Christ. Okay, But in terms of Christmas, that is an issue of Christian liberty. 
Though I will say this, it is good and it is right for Christians to take every opportunity to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly, God is honored and God is rightfully worshipped as His people celebrate every part of His life, whether it be His birth, His death, His resurrection, or ascension. And so I think it's good if Christians celebrate Christmas. It's not a pagan festival. It was something that happened instead of the Christians joining in with the pagans. Just a little bit of history there. Now, if Christians are the ones who began celebrating Christ every 25th of December, then what should we understand about Christmas and its meaning? It's helpful, one, to understand that it's actually not a pagan holiday. There was a pagan holiday that just happened to be on the same day. It is different. So then that means Christmas has a particular meaning and it has a particular theology Everybody has some idea of what they believe Christmas means. I'll give you a few of those. Many say that Christmas is a time to gather together with family. Others say that it's time to give and receive gifts. One self-proclaimed agnostic said that, and I quote, it has gotten to the point that you don't necessarily have to be a strong believer in the religion to celebrate the holiday because of the other humanitarian and familial aspects of it. End quote. But what about the Christian? Christmas is, after all, in fact, a Christian holiday made by Christians in opposition to a pagan celebration. As we gather this morning, what are we to think about Christmas? I think John MacArthur really said it best when he said, Although our society has muddied the message of Christmas through consumerism, myths, and empty traditions, we should not let these distract us from appreciating the real meaning of Christmas. Let us take advantage of this opportunity to remember Him, to worship Him, and to faithfully witness of Him. So for the Christian, Christmas is all about Christ. All other things pale in comparison. So the reality is that Christmas is not at all about gifts, although it's wonderful to give. It isn't about even gathering with family, though that's a marvelous thing to do. It's not about feasting and enjoying fellowship around a spectacular meal, although that's enjoyable. No, Christmas is about celebrating the coming of Christ. To use a phrase that has little meaning to most today, Christ is the reason for the season. That's a true statement. And there's something to that phrase for which Charles Dickens is so famous through Ebenezer Scrooge. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. You see, for the Christian, there really is never a day where we shouldn't think on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that sense, we should indeed keep the heart of Christmas all year. Still, it is good for us to stop and consider specific parts of God's grand plan of redemption a few days out of the year. And holidays like Christmas afford us such an opportunity where we focus on the birth of Christ, one particular aspect of the plan of redemption and the life of Christ. Because Christmas has a particular focus, Christmas has a specific 
theology. And unfortunately, as we've said, it's become so secularized that much of the theology is lost. But the rich theology behind Christmas is a theology that strikes at the heart of the Christian faith because the theology of Christmas is centered around the coming of Christ. So when someone says Christmas is a pagan festival, a pagan holiday, no, it's not. Christmas is specifically in opposition to what once was a pagan holiday. And it is specifically designed by Christians to consider the birth of Christ. Well, why is the coming of Christ so important? I think we do all know the answer to that question, but I want to take some time this morning to dwell on the most important events during the Christian faith's history and God's great plan for the redemption of mankind, one of the most important events. The birth of Christ, which is what you consider on Christmas, was prophesied long ago. If you're familiar with your Bible, then you might instantly think of the book of Isaiah. We read from that chapter this morning. But in reality, Jesus' birth was actually foretold about 700 years before Isaiah wrote in what we call the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. The first gospel. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. This is where we see it. 14 and 15, or I'll read it to you. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And here it comes. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Here's the first gospel. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on your head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first mention of Christ we see, not by name, but by what He will accomplish. The seed of the woman here is referring to Christ, and then God tells us of His victory to come, that He will, quote, bruise the head of the serpent. That is, He will overcome the serpent. This is the first gospel that we see. The first place we see that there is one coming who will defeat the evil that entered into man in the garden. And then we come to those more familiar passages, such as Isaiah 7.14, where God speaks to Ahaz and He says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. Many other verses point to the birth of Christ, but let's fast forward a bit to when things really began to happen here on earth. And turn over to Luke, Luke chapter 1. This is the foretelling of Jesus' birth in Luke. Verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor 
with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now let's jump to Luke 2. Just one chapter over. Now in those days, a decree, verse, verse 1, sorry. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, and to the city which David, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was the of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the field and keeping watch over by their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child, and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all of these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. This is the Christmas story, in short. God sent the Son. The Son came and was born of a virgin, but Jesus was no mere man. This is why the miracle of the virgin birth is so vital. Contrary to the teachings of the Catholic Church who venerate Mary as some sinless human, Mary herself was just like you and me. 
a sinner. She was born not perfect, but a sinless being. No one had ever before this held the title of perfect until Jesus. Just like you and me, Mary, like all the rest of Israel, was looking forward to the coming of a Messiah, one who would save them. But Jesus, however, was not just like you and me. Jesus was the Son of God, is the Son of God, is in fact God incarnate. Jesus was fully man and yet fully God. Jesus wasn't half man and half God like the pseudo-gods of the Greeks. He was God incarnate, God incarnate, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Truly man, but truly God. Listen to John 1.1 describing Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the Word... You'll notice in your Bibles that is capitalized. It's because it's referring to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Speaking of Jesus, if you read further on in John, you see that repeated over and over again, made crystal clear. By the way, the next book we're going to go into after Ephesians is the book of John. And so we see that Christmas is about the coming of the God man, truly God, truly man, promised by God from the beginning of time. It's prophesied over and over in the pages of Scripture and fulfilled on that faithful day as the shepherds were confronted with the angels of God. Now you tell me, hearing all of that, why does it make sense? that any Christian wouldn't want to come and worship Christmas when it falls on the Lord's Day. Now, I've left the most important question that needs to be answered till the end as we look at wrapping up here. We know a little bit about the history of Christmas and what we celebrate during Christmas. We've talked about that, the coming of Christ, we understand that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, truly man and truly God, but why is there a need for Christmas? Why is there a Christmas to start with? Why did Jesus need to be born on earth when He already existed as a part of the Godhead before all time? We started this morning in the book of Genesis, but to answer these questions, we need to go back to Genesis, you see something very important happened just before God gave that first gospel. So if you want, you can turn back to chapter 3, this time starting from verse 1, or you can just listen as I read it to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate 
And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. From this time onward, sin was born in the heart of man. At that moment. And instead of enjoying the beautiful fellowship meant to be with God, what did they do because of sin? They hid themselves from God. And so man forever created a chasm between himself and God in sin. And because God is a loving God, He must also be just. You can't have a loving God who's unjust, right? And this means that evil has to be punished and sin is evil. So what was meant to be an eternal punishment for Satan and his fallen angels, the lake of fire, hell, is now also the eternal state of men who will die in their sin. Hell is is the justice of God upon all sinfulness. Make no mistake, since the fall, the heart of man has been corrupt and sinful. Psalm 14, 1-3 tells us that no one is good, not even one, and that no one truly seeks God. Shortly after the fall of man, still in Genesis, we're told that the heart of man was continually evil, which resulted in the flood. In Jeremiah 17.9, we see that man's heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Man is sin-sick. The first part of Romans 6.23 tells us that there are wages of sin and that the wage of sin is death. So man has a huge problem born in the garden filled with hate and with sin. Ephesians chapter 2 describes men in their born state as being dead and in their trespasses and sins, living according to the lust of the flesh and the minds and are darkened in their minds. And you say, Nathaniel, this sounds pretty depressing. What does this have to do with Christmas? Is there no joy? Is there no hope for man? Are we to leave this morning with a brief history lesson and the knowledge that man is doomed for an eternity in hell on Christmas morning? Dear ones, this stark reality of man's fate is why Christmas is necessary. This 
fate of man is why Christmas is worth celebrating. You see, because man sinned against God, because man deserves eternal punishment for the crime he willingly committed, there was no hope. There was no hope. There was no way for man to redeem himself from the sin that corrupted his own heart. We sin because we want to sin. So there had to be someone who could be a substitute and bear the penalty of sin on man's behalf. And that was why Christ came. He was born so that He might die, and in His death we might live. What did He do so that we would live? Well, we read earlier, but I want to reread that portion to you again. Speaking of Christ in Isaiah 53. Just before verse 3, the end of verse 2, it says, Nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. He gave up His glory for us. He came taking the form of a man, being God. So He came in great humility. It says He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by His scourging, we are healed. Christ was born so that He might die on our behalf. The wages of sin is death, we read earlier. So He lived a sinless life that we could not live. And in our place, He bore God's wrath towards sin. And then He accredited to us His righteousness. That's what it means to be a propitiation to accredit to. Christ was born because of the love of God. John 3.16, which we all know well, says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then two verses later, we read, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So Christmas is a time to celebrate the hope of mankind through the Lord Jesus Christ, who left his heavenly throne, came in humility, giving up his glory, who condescended to come in the form of his own creation, and then he died, taking our punishment so that we might have life in Him, for all those who put their faith and trust in Him. There's no greater joy than this. There's no greater hope for mankind than in Christ. This is why Christmas is supposed to be a joyous season. 
not because we give gifts, but because we were given a gift, the gift of Christ. This is why the season is filled with hope. This is why there's goodwill towards men. Because Jesus Christ was born on earth so that He might redeem every single man, woman, and child who would put their faith in Him. So hopefully, all of the pieces of this morning discourse is coming together and it makes sense. I hope you can see why the church ought to be open on a Christmas Sunday and why we are. I hope you can see why Christ is the reason we celebrate Christmas and also why man's fallen and doomed nature brought about the need for Christmas. Perhaps there'll be someone listening to the message today who says, I see the need for Christmas. I realize the meaning of Christmas now, but how do I get this joy and hope promised? You know, early this morning I opened up my Facebook, which I don't always do on Sunday morning. And I saw a couple of very sad messages from our own community, people who clearly have no joy and no hope and are alone. This is really the message that they need. How do they get this joy? How does someone like that get this hope that Christmas is supposed to bring? Well, the Word of God tells us in Romans 10 that if anyone were to confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised them from the dead, they'll be saved. For with a person's For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The whole world is looking for hope in all the wrong places. And the church has the message of hope that they need. And Christmas is meant to be a reminder to the whole world, at least now it's become so commercialized that it does afford us this opportunity for it to be a reminder of the whole world that there's only one true hope, and that hope is to be found in Christ. As we remember the day Christ came as Emmanuel, God with us, born to die so that all who would believe in Him would leave. That's the Christmas story. Let's pray.